kittens, we are back with another very special self-quarantine stay-at-home episode of the BrandoCast. And I'm just going to make a public apology up front. Because kids, I'm going to nerd out today. Joining me via the power of Zoom from one of my spiritual hometowns. This guy has been in basically so many of my favorite bands. And I have stood in front of this gentleman countless times watching him play bass. You might know him as Jason from Split Single. You might know him as Jason from Super Chunk. You might know him from Jason from Bob Pollard and the Ascending Masters. Or you might know him as Jason from the Bob Mould Band. Ladies and gentlemen, joining me today on the BrandoCast, it is none other than Jason Narducci. Canned laughter. <laughs> Did I get the Ascending Masters right? It's Ascended Masters. It's Ascended Masters. That was such that a... Was, a uh, yeah, Bob came up with that. Bob Pollard. Uh, you know that we were his first band post Got It By Voices when Guided by Voices broke up in 2004. Right. Uh, we toured in 2006. And then, of course, in 2010, he got GBV back together. But, um, yeah, he coined that to his buddies, and it's, it's somehow stuck with the fans, the Ascended Masters. Well, I am friends in real life with one of your bandmates from uh, that outfit, uh, Mr. Dave Phillips. Mm-hmm. And he contends that that was probably the most powerful version of musicians that were put together for one of Bob's projects. It was special, no doubt. Um, I mean, I have so many memories from that time, but, uh, you know, it's unfortunately Tommy Keene is no longer with us, so there's it's with a heavy heart. But we, we rehearsed, that band rehearsed without Pollard at the wow. beginning. Yeah. <laughs> he gave us, he gave us, 60 or 70 songs to learn and we went to la because tommy lived in la and dave lived in la so john and i flew to la to practice and we stayed at tommy's house tommy had a pretty amazing house i had my own floor at his house. <laughs> that's not that's never happened before or since where, where was that house because i'm in los angeles uh one of the canyons got it okay fair enough uh if you if you threw some at me, I might be able to. Uh, could be Beechwood. It could no. be Laurel. Uh, Laurel Canyon. Laurel okay. Canyon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just stunning. A stunning house. You can see it in his video for. Um, my, my brain is mush. I can't remember one of his. Uh, oh, Deep Six Saturday, which is one of my favorite Tommy Keene songs. But his 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 house is in that video partially. But um, so we got to rehearsal and some of those songs. You know, there's this myth that Bob Pollard songs are just one minute long, you know, <laughs> verse, chorus, verse, chorus. It's not true at all. It's, it's, there's some really complex songs. He gets kind of prog sometimes even. Um, and I've heard him say that his, his four Ps, pop, punk, prog, and, and psych. <laughs> but um, we got there, you know, with this 70-song list, and we start playing, and we realize that a minute into each song, we're completely lost. We have no idea where we are because there's no one singing. It's, it's not a, you know, you don't practice without, you're listening to the record, so you have his voice there all the time. So I stepped up and I said, you know, I don't know the lyrics, but I know the melody, so I'll just start singing and hopefully that'll help us. And it did. And that was so, that was sort of an icebreaker for us because I didn't know those three guys. I had right. met them. 
but I didn't know them. So that helped me, and I think it helped them welcome me because of the rest of them. Oh, no, wait a minute. I had met, I had met, yeah, I met all of them. I met Dave through Frank Black, and Tommy was at a bunch of Bob Mould shows, and John was at the, the North Carolina Cat's Cradle. So, I, yeah, but that, so that's, that's a nice memory because at first we were like, oh, no, what are we going to do? And then I, I just started singing, and it, we really caught on. And I would agree with Dave that that was a very special band. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that the first time that you played with John Worcester, the drummer John Worcester? The drummer John Worcester, yes. That is the first time. <laughs> yeah. yeah not, not Twitter comedian John Worcester, but drummer John Worcester. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's amazing. And uh, that band really found, you know, after we played some shows together, it got, it got really good. It was fun. And, and Pollard kept pushing. You know, he kept, here's 10 more songs to learn. And, and he was also open to us making suggestions to songs that we wanted to play. Uh, well, I'm a huge Guided by Voices nerd, but as I said up top, I am I am a Replacements, Soul Asylum, Husker Du nerd. Mm-hmm. So when you and John joined Bob in, what, 2008, 2009-ish? I started playing in 2005. 2005 with Bob, my God. Uh, was that the, the Copper Blue Tour? No, that was um, Circle of Friends with Brendan Canty on drums mm-hmm. and Rich Morrell on keyboards. Okay. And then in 2008, we went out with a different drummer, but Rich on keyboards, and it went so poorly that we called John halfway through the tour, and he took over. Wow. Okay, so that's when John yeah. came into the fold, because you guys... Halfway through I, the tour, no rehearsals. Amazing. <laughs> but you guys, and, and I hope you don't mind me nerding out this way, but you guys are, I, I mean, for, for my money, you guys are the greatest backing band that bob is at and i don't mean to belittle you guys as a backing band but it's just such a powerful trio and and it's it's just so fun to watch because you're all so dynamic on stage you've got the moves you've got the moves like a lead singer and and a lead guitarist almost like a metal guy john hits so goddamn hard and yeah bob is bob um and uh, it's just such an incredible band so it's so exciting right now to be able to talk about the brand new album that is out now i mean it just came out a few days ago uh from you know recording the show it's bob's new record called blue hearts uh there's a whole bunch of videos on youtube right now for everyone to go watch you've got a fantastic video for american crisis which is just ridiculously timely i'd love to talk about that and of course a a great i think a new video for siberian butterfly Mm -hmm. um so i I hope you can just take a a couple seconds to to tell us about that process and 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 just your thoughts about the new record because it's just it's such a gift during this crazy fucking pandemic well i should i should know by now after you know, I've been fortunate to be in Bob's band for 15 years and then work with them for much longer. Um, I should know by now that he's going to have new material pretty quickly. But it really is a surprise when I get an email in November of 19 saying, you know, how's the first week of February looking for recording? And it's like, really? We just finished a tour. <laughs> you know? And then you get the songs and it's like, oh, my God, he did it again. Um, but what happened with American Crisis is that we actually recorded that for Sunshine Rock. And uh, he got far enough with it that you can hear the strings. You know, the strings are such a big part of Sunshine Rock. You can hear the strings in American Crisis. I actually was talking to Bob a couple of weeks ago, and I said, is, is American Crisis 
the only punk rock song to have a bass drop and a string section because <laughs> it's got both but it's a furious punk rock song um and what's crazy is that he you know he wrote it two years ago two and a half years ago and wow. the lyrics are more apropos now than they were then it's like he, he saw the direction it was going we can't believe it's gotten this escalated and sure enough here we are um so that's you know that's one of the special things about playing with Bob is that he 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 writes what we're thinking. He writes what we're feeling. He's great at that. As a fan, what I'm what I love the most is just the sonic output that matches the fury of the lyrics and the yeah. fury of his own vocals. I mean there is nothing there is nothing like a Bob Mould guitar. Uh, just going at a kajillion miles an hour, yeah. and and it's just so fantastic. So, did you guys get together in Chicago in February then to 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 record the the the, the whole record? Yeah, it's a. I think we. I think our approach to making records is a little bit unconventional in that we don't practice. Bob sends us the demos. John and I learn the songs. We get into the studio, and then we just kind of start playing a song, and that's when we determine. Uh, BPM beats the tempo. <laughs> and that's when uh, Bob will say, you know, how's this feeling? Is is this bridge too long or do we need this? And we kind of talk about arrangement. And um, and then while, while we're playing through the song, when we finally get that tempo, we try to get a drum track out of John. And it doesn't take him very long to do that. And in the meantime, I'm practicing the song with John, listening to the parts that he's doing. And then I could go in and do my bass part. And then we start over. And then later, Bob will do guitars and vocals. Occasionally, if, if John, you know, if we did like three bashing songs in one day, John might need a break and Bob will do <laughs> guitars or something, you know. But it's usually we get our stuff done and then Bob starts doing guitars and vocals. But on the last two records, Bob's brought me back in to do backing vocals. And this was the first time that I was there to hear him sing lead on a couple songs. I was oh, wow. American Crisis, uh, When You Left, and maybe Password. I can't remember. But that was powerful to be there for that and just see how how much he puts into it. You know, I mean, you hear it, but then when you see him walk back out of the, the vocal booth, you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. Pouring with sweat, completely emotionally drained. And then with American Crisis, he said, you know, I want to show you the lyrics and they're really hot. These are some, these are some intense lyrics. Are you okay with singing this? And I read through and I'm like, absolutely. I'm, I'm all in on this. Well, um, you're a lyricist uh, on your own. I mean, you have your own band split single. So uh, have you, uh, you know, what, what you have a wind, you have a different kind of window into his process, you know, via your own. Um, what, do you see any similarities or, or huge differences there? Or do you guys have uh, a, a, just a wildly different approach to lyrics? I haven't thought about that before. I mean, we're pretty different people, so I think, yes, mm-hmm. he's, he's really good at writing songs that have meaning far beyond what's on the page. And Siberian Butterfly is a great example of that, where, I, you know, it's not until, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the band, and it's not until I read the interview that I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is about your journey through finding, you know, your 
comfort level with your sexuality. Wow. Yeah. And, and there's other levels to that song. I don't mean to diminish, yeah. you know, to squish it into just that one sentence. There's other levels, but I didn't know that. Um, and I already love the song. <laughs> now I love it more. Um, but you know, I think my, yeah, there's the, the only similarity that I think happens often between our processes is that, um, we both tend to write the music and melody first and then okay. the lyrics, lyrics mm-hmm. come later. Mm-hmm. I know that Bob, like with Brasilia cross with Trenton, he wrote the lyrics first, I believe from workbook, but mostly that's his process. And, and that's the same for me. And for me, it's because lyrics don't come very quickly. Usually mostly it's a, it's a, a painful <laughs> slog and I don't want to invest that time on, unless I really love the music and lyrics. I mean, the music and melody. Gotcha. Now, how for the video for American Butterfly, did you guys just shoot yourselves at home in your yes. backyard and just send in video to an editor? I don't know what John did. Um, I know that Bob was in his backyard. I went over to the Arboretum in Evanston along uh-huh. the Hormick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, if you could see the expressions on the people's faces who were walking by or riding their bike by while I'm standing there with a bass that's not plugged in doing the whole like you know <laughs> um i mean you just feel like such an idiot and, uh, <laughs> and and then it i kind of ran into all these technical problems it was super hot i'm pouring sweat and then i'm you know my phone is doing the bluetooth so i know where i am in the song and this digital camera is my phone overheated and then i brought the footage back home and it lost all the it was so frustrating <laughs> it was like, I, went back, I went back a second time to embarrass myself in front of the uh people riding through the park again but they, i think they did a great job with the video bob uh i don't I, i'm embarrassed to say i don't even know who directed it but bob had a very clear vision and i love the um you know the sparkle and the colors that that happened throughout and um yeah you can see it in most bands covid videos it's like well shoot yourself and send it in and we'll do the best we can you know well i love it i mean you're i i kind of think that you're evanston's uh resident rock star if you will i don't think that uh evanston has really had uh anyone since uh steve albini or the guys from the two of the guys from urge were at northwestern so uh Congratulations, uh, Evanston. You got a, a legend living among you. Don't wow. let, let him do whatever he wants at the Arboretum. I'll, I'll show you my non-legendary bank account, and you can access <laughs> from there. Fair enough. Understood. If you want to say Ev- Evanston's, well, you know what? Nora O'Connor lives four or five blocks away from me, and she works maybe more than I do. Oh, really? Be- okay. Uh, between the Decemberists and, and Nico Case, New Pornographers, Iron and Wine, Jacob Dillon, Andrew Bird, um, she's she does very well. And, um, I mean, obviously, we're all stuck at home now, but um, there's there's a lot of talent in Evanston, and uh, I'm just a occasionally working musician. Well, let me just say this before we... And I knew I was going to bring this up at some point, but... And, and for people who've listened to this podcast, they've heard me say this so many times before. But I was at Northwestern from 1986 to 1990. Mm-hmm. And the thing that has always struck me about Evanston, because of the friends that I made, not friends that I made in college, but friends outside the school, the Gen X talent that, that comes from Evanston Township is really ridiculous. Yeah. 
uh, from the kids who went to the Piven Theater, and I'm just I'm not talking about Jeremy Piven and John Cusack. I'm talking about there's so many talented writers and actors and musicians that that came out of ETHS. Yeah. In the 80s. I mean, it. what was in the water that led well, to so many kids just taking up a creative endeavor and running with it? Well, I think it's still vibrant. Evanston just is, it's, it's a great place to grow up. And it's probably why I'm still here and, and, and proud to raise my kids here. Um, not that it isn't without some issues, but um, it's diverse. It's got a great public education system. It's got the lake. It's got beautiful architecture um it's a it, it feels like a community i think it's getting a little bit big you know they're they're building so many condos that sometimes you walk downtown and it's just like mm, this is this is pushing it a little bit but it still maintained its its character um but i don't know i mean that's a good question i mean if i could tell you i used to work at the record exchange on dempster and <laughs> the, amount, the amount of people that not only worked there and went on to have you know careers in music or the people that shopped there and, you know, whether it's movies or, or, or TV or, the, you know, it's, it, it is vibrant for sure. Um, I don't know what you can attribute that to. It's uh, really amazing. I mean, it, 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 there's the writer DVD Vincentis. There's so many people in comedy, Laura Kraft. Uh, you know, I'm friends with Billy and Ann Cusack. You know, I was just so aware of the Piven Theater when I was a kid. I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's an incredible community. I miss it so much. I was supposed to be there next weekend for my 30th reunion. Oh, no. So, so I'm denied the opportunity to go to Buffalo Joe's. I don't know if I could convince, <laughs> I don't know if I could convince you to send me a buffalo chicken sandwich uh, after we're done here. But, um, you know, I always do my little food uh, field trips, uh, you know, every time I go there. I was just there a couple of years ago, and you're right. I mean, I was struck by the number of high-rises in the air. But, I mean, it's a special place. Lauren uh, Lapkus? I mean, she went to ETHS, didn't she? Yeah, I, 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 absolutely, yeah. Pat, Pat O'Neill was part of that whole uh, CUSAC thing. He wrote, um, he wrote some Tom Cruise movie. Um, uh, and Steve Pink, I think, grew up in Evanston. Steve Pink, yeah. I, I mean, it's just, it's really in- incredible. The, the legendary Matt, Pol- Polly Noonan grew up Matt in Evanston. O- Matt O'Neill, all the O'Neills. Matt O'Neill was in uh, Dark Knight, and he's a successful acting career. And yeah, Evanston's uh, got a lot of talent. Well, I, the, the, what, when I was doing just a little bit of research before the show, as a fan of yours, I know that you have long been a fan of The Who. And there's a really hilarious video. If you just go to YouTube and type in Jason Narducci, you will see a fantastic video of Jason playing Bob Mould's Wishing Well as a young dude in a Who shirt. Uh, so that reunion. T-shirt, yeah. Okay, were you at Alpine Valley like I was in 1989 for that show? I was at two of the three shows. <laughs> All right, so that's that's kind of an awkward segue into what we're going to talk about on the Brando cast today. The Who are an English rock band formed in London way back in 1964. Their classic lineup consisted of lead singer Roger Daltrey, guitarist and singer Pete Townsend, bass guitarist John Entwistle, and drummer Keith Moon. Originally known for their explosive live shows and commitment to mod fashion, The Who are considered one of the most influential rock bands of the 20th century. They've sold over 100 million records worldwide, and they were elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990. Now, Jason, I will say this to you. 
we both know that the history of The Who is too vast and too special to condense into an hour show. So I'm just going to sort of use uh, important bits and pieces of their history to present to the show. But just tell me about your love of The Who. I, uh, my, my dad took me to see The Kids Are Alright in the movie theater when it came out in the summer of 1979. So I was eight years old. And we're waiting in line to get our tickets. There were two elderly women. It was a Sunday afternoon. There were two elderly women ahead of us. The ticket salesperson was t- trying to convince them to not see this movie. <laughs> and he was saying, it's loud. It's really loud. You don't want to see this. And as an eight-year-old, I thought, oh, this is cool. This could be good. And I, I really knew nothing about the band. And, you know, the first song, My Generation, they destroyed their instruments on the Smothers Brothers show. You know, they had humor, they had style, they were great players. The song was unlike anything I had heard. And, you know, at the end, the stage blows up. I mean, I, I was completely sold within the first three minutes of the film, and then it just got better and better. And not really appropriate for an eight-year-old to see. <laughs> but... Parenting in the 70s. Um, yeah, and I, you know, it was really, I loved the whole band and I loved the songs and the lyrics, but it was Townsend, it was Pete Townsend that, you know, still to this day remains my favorite rock star, if you will. That's not a great phrase for it, but his his uh, depth and his ability to capture such a wide range of emotions and styles of music, you know, those scoop records show you what an incredible home demo you know songwriter he is and recorder engineer because he's i remember seeing an interview with glenn johns about making who's next and he said have you heard the demos my job was to not fuck this up <laughs> you know like the demos for who's next are incredible but it was i think it was his physicality i think it was townsend's athleticism that set him apart for me because i grew up in a house that it was all beatles all the time some kinks some Hollies. I grew up with with uh, fantastic bands, but none of them did what Townsend did, which was, you know, is just so physical. And um, I was that was a magnet for me. That that was just everything. And I went home and just started drawing the Who. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I, I don't play an instrument. I can't watch that movie because it's 1979, and it's you know it's before VHS tapes existed. But sure enough, by eighty. I believe um, we had we had a VHS copy of the Kids Are Alright, and I, I I played the shit out of it. Okay, so when do you pick up a guitar and or bass? Because I think did you start on guitar? Started on guitar. My my mom and stepdad bought me an electric guitar for my. It would have been the Christmas that I was. I can't remember if I was nine or ten, but um, they bought me an SG copy. Not a great guitar, but exactly what I needed, and I you know I slept with it. It was everything. And then I, I formed a, a band with some Evanston friends when I was 10 um, called Verboten. Was, we were trying to play punk rock. I don't know if we were, but we loved punk rock. And um, we were together for maybe a year and a half. And uh, that's that's how I got my start playing music. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a guitarist. And then I learned to play bass uh, when I got asked to play with other bands. Okay, well, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play my generation so that I can come back to Verboten because I got an important question for you. Okay. 
Originally called the Detours in the High Numbers, The Who quickly established themselves as part of London's pop art and mod movements. Their dynamic live shows often ended with Townsend and Moon destroying guitars and drums on stage, which kept the band in debt for most of the 60s. I can't explain the band's first hit as The Who reached the top 10 in the UK and was followed by a string of very uh, very successful singles, including Substitute, Happy Jack, and My Generation. On Sunday, June 18, 1967, The Who stunned the American audience with their incendiary set at the Monterey Pop Festival, which of course ended with The Who destroying the stage. The rest of America would get its introduction to The Who, as Jason referenced earlier, on September 17, 1967 when The Who ended a nationally televised performance of My Generation with a literal bang that blew out Pete Townsend's eardrums, left shrapnel in Keith Moon's arm, and momentarily knocked the Smothers Brothers comedy hour off the air. All because Keith Moon convinced a roadie to pack ten times the amount of explosives The Who would usually use in their flash pots. Now, Speaking of televised performances, there is on YouTube, verboten, on I think the show is called Kidding Out in Chicago. Kidding Around. Kidding Around. What was that show? (laughs) That was a Saturday morning NBC, you know, Chicago land kids show where, you know, I think right after we played, it's, um, you know, a 12-year-old making cookies or something. (laughs) (laughs) And Zach Cantor, our drummer, his dad was in advertising and he had heard about this show and they said, well, you need to submit a recording. So his dad actually paid for us to record for two hours. So we recorded, he said we could record four songs and, but we wanted to do five. So we combined two. (laughs) There's a song called work and a song called let it out. And so we called it work to let it out. And, um, we submitted that to the Kidding Around producers, and they said yes, and they let us do two songs. I mean, so much more fun than going to the Bozo Show at WGN. I don't know about that. <laughs> but was that was that your first sort of taste of the rock life, appearing on Kidding Around? Yeah, I had also done, um, my dad taught um, popular culture at um, Northwestern, and some of his students had a band called The Cleaning Ladies, and they their singer... My dad used to bring me to these parties, which, again, parenting in the 70s. But I was at a party that the cleaning ladies had, and I think it was at John Anderson at at the singer's house. And he had an acoustic guitar sitting there, and I picked it up and started playing. And he was like, whoa, I'm going to write a song for us. So he wrote a song called Give Up on My Girl, where where he and I are, are battling over the same woman. I'm 10 years old and he's, you know, whatever, 30. And uh, so there's a video of that. I'd shot that video in 1981. Wow. And John Anderson went on to, um, I think he won a Grammy for, um, he did a lot of work with, he he shot video for Brian Wilson. So he made the Smile DVD. So John Anderson from The Cleaning Ladies went on to have a, a real successful video career. But I mean, yeah, no, I hadn't done TV before kidding around. <laughs> just I shot that one video. How was Evanston for punk rock? I mean, I I didn't get there again. I didn't get there till '86. I had come from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Albuquerque 
people listening to this podcast have heard this a thousand times. Albuquerque is a metal town. So I'm in seventh grade in 1980, and that's back in black. That's Van Halen, Women and Children. You know, we're just about to really dive into Judas Priest and Dio and Ozzy and Iron Maiden and Saxon. And that was my high school because all those bands came to Albuquerque. We didn't really get punk rock like you had to be a really a way out kid because albuquerque is 10 years behind everybody else and the our only images of punk rock really came from you know watching night flight on usa network or picking up an issue of thrasher magazine you know what i mean i mean it was just metal 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 and that's what i did in high school i saw everybody it was so easy to go to shows in albuquerque because you could take the city bus to the tingley coliseum to see iron maiden in saxon but um, you know how 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 accessible was punk rock to you know a young uh, Jason Narducci? Well, I was fortunate to have great friends. I mean, Tracy and Chris from Verboten both had fantastic collections and went to a lot of shows. I wasn't really allowed to go to shows, and I was really young. And I don't think Zach was allowed to either. We were we were the two youngest in the band. But um, you know the the store that I mentioned earlier, Record Exchange on Dempster. Not only did I end up working there in high school, but as you know, as a kid, I would shop there, and they had they had punk rock records, so you could yeah. buy them. And at the time, there was kind of there was a lot of blur, like you know, to us, the first Pretenders record was punk rock, yeah, and the first Clash record was punk rock, but so was the Effigies, who were from Evanston, and so were the Circle Jerks, and um, so we, you know, which I think is a little bit more authentic, maybe punk rock, um, Naked Ray Gun. Um, so we, it was, it was our music, yeah. you know, our parents, our parents listened to rock. I grew up listening to rock and it was on the radio and it was on the stereo at home. I think that was true for, well, not for Tracy, but for most of us. And then punk rock comes along and it's like, Oh, my parents hate this. I love this. <laughs> you know, it, it separated the generations. And so it, we became very passionate about it. We were too young to, um, pull it off in a way that we ended up sounding pretty new wave. It sounded like the go-go's, you know, I mean, not (laughs) the go-go's were great. We were not great, but we, we listened to and opened up for real punk rock bands (laughs) and and, uh, we're fortunate to be, you know, somewhat recognized a little bit. Well, Chicago's the the most amazing city for music, I think. I mean, personally. I mean, the the reason that I talk about my experience at Northwestern so much is, you know, again, I get there in the in the fall of 1986 and at that time I've already transitioned out of metal because metal was becoming really cheesy and, you know, the success of Van Halen when the jocks started showing up at Van Halen shows, that's when it was over. I've always yeah. said that when the jocks discover your band, it's over. Uh, and I, Husker Du and The Replacements were the two bands that helped me transition out of metal. I mean, the, the Motorhead and the Ramones are sort of the bridge for me. Mm-hmm. So when I get to Northwestern, Chicago is just my playground. And yeah. all, all to the detriment of my studies, all I did was, was go out in Chicago. Cabaret Metro, batteries not included, exit, I mean, you name it, even Biddy Mulligans, no, no matter what was going on, it was just so easy and so fun to, to go to see live music in Chicago. And, and so for me, it's like, I really feel like it's my spiritual home because it, it gave me the opportunity to see Husker Du's last show at the Cabaret Metro, Bob's first solo show at the Cabaret Metro. I truly think, if I'm not mistaken, we saw the Pixies at the fucking Cubby Bear. 
Cubby Bear both good bands at the time. Jane's Addiction. I swear yeah. to God, the first Jane yeah. show in Chicago was was at the Cubby Bear, which, for people who don't know, on a Saturday morning, it's just drunk bros watching Big Ten football. So However, it wasn't, it wasn't then. You know, oh, was it wasn't. No, no. I mean, Verboten actually played at Cubby Bear in oh, eighty three. That's that's on YouTube too. Wow! <laughs> Thanks to my dad bringing a massive camcorder and putting it on his shoulder. It was punk rock in eighty. They had punk rock shows in eighty three. I mean, they also had cover bands, but it was a wow. terrible neighborhood. And then by the late eighties, I mean, I saw I saw Rights of the Accused there in eighty eight or eighty nine. Yeah, um, they had a lot of rock bands. A lot of I'm sure Soul Asylum played there a million times. Yeah, Husker Du played at Cubby Bear before they were playing at Metro. Um, yeah, they had they had good booking and the location was great. And there were so many bands that I think Metro didn't suffer because there was plenty of other bands that wasn't like they were all competing that much. But um, yeah, it was it didn't become the the like five hundred TVs pictures of beer place until later when it became more of a, a sports bar. And Wrigleyville became Brotown. It's pretty awful. Yeah. <laughs> now tell me how tell me about the verboten play. So, I mean, the crazy thing about that band is that Tracy's, our lead singer, Tracy Bradford, her cousin is Dave Grohl from Nirvana and the Foo Fighters. And so Dave was nice enough to include us in his HBO Sonic Highways special when they focused on Chicago. So he, you know, he interviewed me and he interviewed Tracy and showed footage of us, of us playing at Cubby Bear when I was 11. And that, so that came out in 2014 there was a Northwestern professor named Brett Nevue, who's a playwright and has been successful. You know, he's won Jeff Awards and he's produced 30 original plays. We didn't know each other, but our kids went to the same school. So he reached out to mutual friends and took me out for, for beers and pitched me on this idea of making a musical about Verboten, which I thought was crazy and exciting and flattering, but also impossible and way too ambitious. You know, the idea was to have 11 actors who play the music, too. So there's no, you know, mostly when you see a musical, there's the actors and then they break into song and somewhere there's an, a band, you know. But this is, they play all the instruments, which is challenging when, anyway, so he, he wrote the book and I wrote the music and it took us five years, but it it uh, it premiered thankfully before COVID. We had a great run. It got extended, and we just found out last week that it got nominated for for Jeff Awards. So wow. it was an incredible experience, and and I hope that when things get you know healthier, that we can try to relaunch it and do something else with it. That's fantastic. Well, you guys were School of Rock before there was School of Rock. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing w- watching those uh, those videos, which everyone can see online. The group's fourth album, 1969 Tommy, is a rock opera that tells the story of Tommy Walker, a deaf, dumb, and blind boy who sure plays a mean pinball. It's a sequel of sorts to their mini rock opera, A Quick One While He's Away. Recording began in September of 1968, but took six months to complete as material needed to be arranged and re-recorded in the studio. Critics hailed Tommy as the Who's breakthrough and live appearances at Woodstock and the Isle of Wight Festival, along with their live album, Live at Leeds, cemented The Who's reputation as one of the planet's most powerful rock acts. Did you get the chance to see The Who on on this last go-around before uh, the pandemic? I didn't. Uh, The last time I saw them was 
2012, my wife had never seen them, and they were they were touring Quadrophenia, and uh, I found some, you know, relatively inexpensive good seats in front of Pete, maybe four rows back, and um, that was really special for me to to take her to that, and she was immediately loved it and was moved by the performance, um, but. Uh, you know, I, I they set an impossible precedent for all other bands as a live band, and I think they have now set that precedent, that impossible precedent for themselves. <laughs> it was good. It was good, but I it wasn't. You know, it's just different. It's just different now. They're older. For me, the last couple times I've I've seen them every time they've come to L.A. Actually, since. You know the the late '90s when they really got things back together and yeah. and started touring consistently. And um, they're all the last time, not this last time at the Hollywood Bowl, but the the show at the Staples Center before that. Roger stopped the show twice. Oh, was that to, the smoking weed thing? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. And and for the first time he did it when he just started scolding people. Uh, it, it it seemed like a bit, like he was doing yeah. like like a comedy bit. You've got to be kidding me, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and and by the way, the people that can afford the seats at the Staples Center for a Who show in 2015, 2016, those are all entertainment lawyers. Those yeah. are all showrunners and people with cash, yeah. uh, disposable cash in Los Angeles. So yeah. th- these are not. Um, but and then he when he stopped the show again, it was like, oh, okay, he's he's actually really pissed. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I heard from a number of friends who saw the Chicago show last summer that Roger sounded incredible, which is fantastic. I'm, I, I love hearing that, you know, that at his age, he can just completely crush a crowd of 25,000 people. Um, so I don't mean to be dismissive. They're legends. They're, they deserve everything. And, and, um, uh, it, it just, it doesn't have the same appeal to me. I would rather, I'd rather go see, um, Kill, kills birds or mannequin pussy or Mets. You ever seen Mets? I have not. Oh my god! If you like punk rock, yeah, go see Mets. Mets, M E T Z from Toronto. There, there are so many great bands out there, and that's part of why I'm so heartbroken right now. I really miss seeing great live music. Um, well, the, the <laughs> do not judge, but the last show that I saw before the pandemic was Kiss and David Lee Roth here in Los Angeles. Yikes. <laughs> I should be seeing you guys at the Terragram Ballroom right about now somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yes, I did go to, I host a show on Sirius XM um, with uh, Mr. Ahmed Zappa, so we went to that show um, hoping actually to interview somebody but we didn't but we just had a a great time but you know that was the the last live show i saw before everything shut down let let me go back to to young jason in chicago what other bands struck you and 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 what other bands were you going to see live and 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 really getting into back then well we you know a year ago the bob mold band played at riot fest and the same day that we were playing uh niclo was playing and Ah. i i whether or not I'm I'm playing at Riot Fest or not, I bring my son to because we it's a nice outing for us, and he's a big rock fan. And I really wanted him to see Nick Lowe, and Nick was playing at, at one o'clock uh, that day, and um, so we get there at noon, and we drop off our stuff in the Bob Mold trailer, and we're walking towards the stage where Nick Lowe is is about to perform, and I see the Guided by Voices trailer on the way, and I said, you know, Sean, hold on a second, I knock on the door, the door opens, it's all of them. 
drinking at 1230 <laughs> and I uh, introduced them to my son and, you know, give hugs and, and Bob Pollard said, you know, we're going to walk over and see Nick Lowe. You want to go with us? I was like, that's exactly where we're going. So we all stood there and watched and, and I got to meet Nick Lowe for the first time after that. And I, I thanked him for the great show and for coming to Chicago. And I said, can I tell you about the first time I saw you, I saw you play music? And he said, yeah. I said it was February of 1981 at the Rosemont Horizon opening up for the cars. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and his response was so great. His response was, those were the days. <laughs> um, he was lovely. But I, yeah, it was sadly five hours later, it was announced that Rick Ocasek had passed away. And I, I revisited those first three records, which I think are incredible. Um, the cars were real important. The pretenders, um, uh, did you mean Chicago bands or just what I was no, listening no, to? No, what you were listening yeah. to. I mean, going yeah. to shows at Rosemont, going to Alpine Valley. Yeah, my know. dad took me to a lot of shows. We saw um, we saw the police and the Go-Go's in 81. We saw wow. um, Bruce on the River Tour in 81, um, all at the Rosemont Horizon. My first show was Cheap Trick. He took me to see Cheap Trick at the Granada Theater Wow. Um, in February of 81. And, and that was maybe just as influential as the kids are right. I mean, Cheap Trick means so much to me. Yeah. Um, and they they were, <laughs> I mean, the Cheap Trick in 1981 was something to behold. And, you know, Rick Nielsen, also athletic and um, physical in his performance style, and Robin with that incredibly powerful voice, um, Can't Stop the Music had just come out, that single, the bridge to that. If you ever want to hear like some of the best rock singing of ever of, at any time, it's it's Robin and the Bridge of. But uh, yeah, I went to a lot. I was very fortunate to see a lot of shows, and um, I miss it. Yeah, so do I. I mean, it was it's it's always been such a huge part of my life. I doubt you're at Monsters of Rock in Alpine Valley. That was uh, Van Hagar, Scorpions, Metallica, and Kingdom Come. But uh, just that summer that The Who played at, at, at Alpine, I think it was the same summer that the Rolling Stones came. No, I saw Van Halen. I saw them in 81 on the Diver Down tour. And then I saw them again on the 84, the last one with the original lineup. Well, for a while. Yeah. And then I, I saw them again with Hagar on the OU812 tour. So I think three times I saw them. I didn't go to the Monsters of Rock. I think it was, <laughs> was kind of long, wasn't it? I heard it was kind of long. Yeah, like, no, but it, it was it was the that show was was crazy because it was like all the Heshers from Chicago and Milwaukee meeting up at Alpine Valley, and I'll never forget. I was standing in line at the concession, you know, in the concession line, uh, probably during Dawkin. You know, I could take a timeout during Dawkin. You weren't rocking with Dawkin. <laughs> We were that's there to see Metallica. We were there to see. Yeah, I yeah. know. Yeah. We were there to see Metallica, but I'm I'm in line, you know, getting beer or food or whatever with, for my friends, and I just remember the kid in front of me just passed out, just like literally like someone shot him with a bullet, and he yeah. just fell down, and no one did a thing. Everyone just stepped over that kid, and <laughs> God, you know, I mean, it was just chaos, and of course, yeah. I've sadly I've seen the Grateful Dead one too many times at Alpine Valley as well. Who's next is the Who's fifth studio album. It developed from the aborted Lifehouse project, a multimedia rock opera written by Townsend as a follow-up to Tommy. The project was canceled due to its complexity 
and conflicts with manager Kit Lambert, who was struggling with his own addictions. Eight of the nine songs on whose next were from Lifehouse, the lone exception being John Entwistle's My Wife, whose next includes the hits Won't Get Fooled Again, Baba O'Reilly, and Behind Blue Eyes. The album quickly became an FM radio staple in the U.S. What else are you listening to today? What else are, besides the what other what other bands are inspiring you? There's well, there's an LA band called Kills Birds that I mentioned before that I think are great. Mm-hmm. Um, Chicago bands Facts F A C S they have a an EP called Void Moments which is fantastic. There's a Chicago band called Deeper that have a record called Auto Pain. It's their second record. Their first record is unbelievable. This one's good too. There's a musician from Milwaukee named Graham Hunt that has a record called Le- Leaving Silver City. That's fantastic. Wow. Uh, oh, there's a there's a merge band from Australia called Cable Ties that I like a lot. Um, I got that one not looking at my phone. If you can believe that. <laughs> <laughs> if you can believe that. Um, well, I'll tell you what I've been doing, and this yeah. is such a strange oh, Pro- thing. Proto Martyr. Proto Martyr have a new record that's really great. Pro- Proto Martyr. Detroit uh, post-punk band, just an unbelievable band. I'll, I'll tell you what my shtick is. And, and again, I'm a guy who still has my Jesus Urge Superstar shirt that I bought at Vintage Vinyl on Davis way yeah. back in the day. Yeah. Uh, what I have been doing is basically listening to nothing but 60s music. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have been, there was a radio station in Los Angeles, 93KHJ, and they basically played the pop hits of the 60s and sprinkled them with more exciting music like The Seeds and Love and Early Doors. Um, but I'm, that's, that's the thing that is calming me down. I would much rather listen to The Association or The Fifth Dimension right now yeah. than, than go out and find new stuff because I'm the fan. Like, I'm not a musician. I can sing. Every year I do, I do do a live show in L.A. because all my friends are musicians and I put together a band and we play Iggy and Bowie and Van Halen and Black Sabbath. But, uh, but just going back and listening to The Hollies and listening to Jerry and the Pacemakers, like, that's keeping me calm now. Well, it's, I've, I've read that that's, um, it's good for anxiety to hear things that are familiar. Yeah, absolutely. That things are a little bit more stable. The, um, there's a venue here in Evanston now called Space that's been here for about 10 years. And um, when this whole thing went down and all my tours got canceled and, um, you know, didn't, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. They came up with this concept of doing lawn shows um, where they, they bring, you know, they make pizza over at space and they bring pizza and beer and a musician will come to your backyard and play. Wow. And Nora has done them. John Langford has done them. And I've, I've now done 45 of them this summer. You've done 45 live yard shows this summer. Yeah. Lawn shows. It's the most solo shows I've done any year. Wow. Now, now there, it's you know, it's getting colder. I'm running out of time. But <laughs> <laughs> but it, when you said the Hollies, it reminded me of this um, lawn show that I got hired for. I think the woman had no idea who I was, but she contacted Space and she hired me to play for 45 minutes for her husband's 70th birthday party, and he is from England and he used to play in a band when he was young. So she asked if I would play only British invasion songs and, and, and Jake at space was like, God, is that a lot? Is that a lot to ask for you to learn, you know, 45 minutes? I was like, 
I'm so into this. I'm going to work my butt off on this. So I did. And um, it was a total surprise for him, which was exciting. He comes outside with his slice of pizza and looks at me in his driveway and he's he just can't figure out what's going on. And I start playing and I open up with, you know, should have known better by the Beatles or I don't remember everything that I did, but you know, Waterloo sunset and, and it's just him and his wife, their adult son and another couple. So it's five people sitting in a garage after every song. I'd be like, (laughs) (laughs) they were into it, but it was so intimate that it was almost uncomfortable until about three songs, four songs in he starts, I finish a song and he'll say something like I heard that song for the first time at the youth center in Yorkshire, or I heard that's that song reminds me of riding my bike through the snow because that, that album, that song came out in the winter. So I realized I'm playing this guy's soundtrack to his childhood. Yeah. And I start about three quarters of the way through the show. I start playing, uh, the animals house, of the rising sun. I do the first four chords and he, he goes stop. And I, I was worried that I messed up or, or they hate the animals or what, what could possibly be wrong here. He stands up and he goes, this one's going to be a duet. <laughs> Goes inside, gets his guitar. Oh, gets his guitar? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. We, and we played it together. It oh, great. my God. So he literally great. got up and went, there is a house in New Orleans. <laughs> We're both playing and singing at the same time. And we finished the song, and he, he said, I haven't played music with anybody in 48 years. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's really powerful. Anyways, I, I took that pretty seriously, that project of learning those songs. And, and in doing so, I learned about the Hollies. They, unlike their peers, they, oh, well, like their peers, they were blowing up in England, but they didn't have that hit single to get them over to America. So, you know, Herman's Hermits and the Kinks and the Stones and all these bands are heading over. And they're just stuck because they don't have a hit song. And they're songwriters, so they're working hard at it, but it's just not happening. In the midst of all this, their manager calls Graham Nash and says, Graham, I'm sorry to bother you with this, but there's a woman in my neighborhood, in, in the neighborhood of the office, who calls every single day telling me about her 15-year-old son and his songs and his voice and his guitar playing, and I just can't get her to stop. Could you do me the favor of going over to their house, patting him on the head, saying, keep up the good work, and then we should be done with this whole thing. So he goes over there, and the kid comes out with his guitar and plays Bus Stop. And Graham goes, well, that's a hit song. What else do you have? And he played Look Through Any Window. So this 15-year-old kid wrote their first two hit songs. I, I did not. Wow, that's incredible. There's a fantastic, for people listening at home, there's a fantastic Hollies documentary that you can watch on Amazon Prime and... That's one that of the story, most. That story that's must amazing. Be in there. Yeah, uh, Graham, Graham. I don't. Goldman. I don't remember it being there. I really don't remember it. You know Graham, how talking. Graham Goldman is the guy's name, and he went wow. on to write for your love, for the Yardbirds. Yeah, and wow. then he formed he formed a band in the seventies called Ten CC. He wrote, uh, "We're not in love." No, 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 no. Yeah. yeah, just because. Wow, that he is. Have, he, he may have written even even more, but there's four hits right there, starting at age 15. That's insane. Yeah, it's insane. <laughs> That's insane. Well, it's my favorite period of time. Let me just read one last thing. I, I, I'm an Anglophile, so all that stuff is absolutely my favorite. Uh, let me just wrap up some Who stuff, and I'll let Jason go after we hear. 
The Punk and The Godfather. Quadrophini is The Who's sixth studio album. It was released as a double record on October 26, 1973. It's the group's second rock opera. Set in London and Brighton in 1965, it's the story of a young mod named Jimmy and his search for self-worth and importance. Quadrophini is the only Who album entirely composed by Pete Townsend. The album reached number two in both the UK and the US. Again, the history of The Who is just too vast. There's just absolutely no way that I could have covered anything, uh, especially with D- Jason, because Jason's stories alone are uh, are, are worth Lengthy. the price of admission. Lengthy <laughs> and amazing. So let me just let me just ask you, if as we wrap up here, what's next for Split Single? And you know what are what's the mold band talking about? You know for future steps with the new record, or if there's anything else that you'd like to promote as well. Uh, I am working on a third split single record. Fantastic. Um, which we recorded the bass and drums to last year. Uh, John Worcester on drums and Mike Mills from REM on bass. But I I've been a little bit stuck because of all the work that went into Verboten the musical, and then the COVID thing happened and we've. The engineer that I work with here in Chicago, Matt Allison, he and I have been trying to figure out a, a safe work. You know, like he, he's been so helpful. He brought over a remote recording setup for me. He didn't come in the house, but he dropped it off. And I, I'm not sure that I can sing and be an engineer at the same time. So mm-hmm. I might, we might try to record my vocals in his garage or something. We're just, I don't know. I really want to finish it because I think it's really good. And I, the parts that John and Mike came up with are amazing. But uh, between, you know, the, my kids being online and me looking for work and working hard when I get work, it's, there's been a lot of distractions. Um, so hopefully that record, I can finish that this year and, and get it out next year. And as far as uh, Bob Mold and Super Chunk, you know, I think we're all waiting for it to be safe. And as soon as it's yeah. safe, we will be doing shows. Well, as a fan... I absolutely cannot wait. I have one too many photos of Jason playing bass on my phone. Uh, I I just can't wait to. <laughs> I just can't wait till you guys are back out on the road. The last Super Chunk show at the Terragram was bonkers. That was fun. That was an incredible night. And and the last, I almost bought that orange Bob Mould flannel shirt that they had uh, at the the Terragram show because that show was so insane as well. Um, Jason. I cannot thank you. I cannot thank you enough for spending this time uh, with me on on the Brando cast. It's just, as a fan, it's just a thrill to be able to talk uh, to you uh, via Zoom. And I just wish nothing but the best for you. I'm jealous that you're in Evanston. I don't know what to say about that. We didn't even talk about me working at Bennigan's of Evanston. Yeah, where? Which Bennigan? <laughs> was it on Dempster? No, it was the one that was on. Oh, it's like a steakhouse now. I forget the name of the steakhouse, uh, right around the corner from where Potbelly's is. Um, oh, oh, well, that's not Pete. You're talking about Pete Miller's. That's not there anymore either. Right. Okay. So Pete Miller's is gone. That's yeah. where Bennigan's of Evanston was. Really? In, in, in the in the late '80s. Yeah, I worked there for a year and a half. I don't remember. And that. a young Chicago's Rafer Weigel also worked at uh, Bennigan's of Evanston. I know Jenny. I know Jenny Weigel. Yeah. So he, they used to have, whenever Tim was out of town, 
Rafer would take all the uh, Bennigan's employees to party over at their place. So I've been, I've been there. That's a nice house. <laughs> That's a nice, That's a nice house. It's a very nice house. Uh, anyway, I, I just, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, thank you, and, Brennan. Thanks and, for having uh, me. It's just been a, a, a fantastic way for me to spend an hour during this period of time. And to the rest of you, uh, thank you so much for for listening, subscribing, liking. We're growing exponentially. We've got so many great guests coming down the pike. Of course, the Brando cast is produced by Richard Cheltinga. So, until the next time, cats and kittens. I know you deceived me, now here's a surprise. I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes. I can see for my